0: So it is unusually cold today, in case you wondered if that was really real, it is really real. <laughs> uh, top of Mount Tam, which is the highest peak in Marin, there's three inches of snow tonight with about two more inches expected, so that's really unusual, so it is really cold. So that's why tonight I wanted to talk about Metta, and I thought it would warm us up a little bit. Really, I want to do it because um, we haven't talked a lot about metta, and I'm a very big enthusiast of this practice. It's really a wonderful practice that brings so many benefits to us. Some of the benefits are uh, somewhat clear early on. Some of them are not so apparent, and those are the ones that I want to talk more about tonight, the ones that are not uh, so apparent. But early on, from doing the loving-kindness practice, we can feel the growth in us of more warmth and more sweetness and more um, relationship with the people that we bring in, the friend and benefactor and even the perhaps the difficult person. So we feel that warming up of our emotional field very immediately with the practice of loving-kindness. We notice that as we feel better about ourselves, as the metaphor self starts to grow, other problems immediately go away. We feel less in conflict with ourselves, less self-judgment. We tend to feel less in conflict with other people. Someone commented in an interview today that as the metaphor self has grown, the judgments of others have gone way down, just very naturally. I noticed that a lot when I was doing intensive metta practice. I started off as we usually do in a retreat with a reasonable amount of hindrances, a reasonable harvest of hindrances to work with. But as the metta started to kick in, the judgments went completely away. You know, any judging thoughts of other people just disappeared. So these are some of the things that we notice immediately. The Buddha talked about 11 benefits of loving kindness practice. And I'm going to read them a little slowly so that you can kind of feel into each one. These apply to a mind that has really become mature or steeped in loving kindness. One sleeps easily, wakes easily, and has pleasant dreams. People love you, devas and animals love you, and devas protect you. Weapons can't harm you. The mind is joyful. The face is serene. You die peacefully, and you have a good rebirth. It's almost worth doing for those <laughs> for those reasons. It's a good list. But tonight I want to talk mostly about two benefits that aren't so obvious right away, but these are kind of like slow-growing insights that dawn on us over the course of of doing metta over a period of time. And there may be two two of the deeper shifts that happen to us, and I'm going to call them tenderness and connection. So this quality of tenderness is something that grows little by little. You know, the best things in meditation grow little by little. A lot of things can happen with a bang, but things that come quickly also tend to pass away quickly. Or as one of my teachers said, experiences are like clouds. They come and they go, but realization is like space. You sort of don't notice it. And wisdom, he was sort of tying this with wisdom, grows slowly. And you can think about this when you think about the real lasting fruits of your meditation practice. One of the, the main ones is equanimity. The balance of mind that lets you be even with all the changes that life presents. This quality of equanimity can't be rushed. It's not something that you can uh, figure out in one retreat. It takes a lot of steady application over years to develop a a strong sense of equanimity, but it's one of the most lasting strengths that we can have in our lives. So the growth of tenderness and connection are a little bit like this too. They don't necessarily hit us over the head right away, but they grow slowly and strongly and they're really important. So this quality of tenderness, there's kind of an inherent tenderness to being human because we're very, uh, we're very sensitive beings. We're very sensitive to changes of, of pleasure and pain. The fact that our skin is not covered by a thick fur is one factor, it makes us more sensitive than most other creatures. The horses down there in the front field, I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes it can be raining and they won't go undercover. You notice that? This rain will be coming down, you know it's cold, and they just stand there. Because they have very thick uh, coats and thick hide. It doesn't penetrate so much, but we're we're very sensitive as human beings. And then we take this innate sensitivity, and in the practice of loving-kindness, we're developing it every moment by tuning into our metta person and going, Are you well? I hope you're well. Are you happy? I hope you're happy. Are you healthy? I hope you're healthy. This is what we're doing all through our metta practice. We're kind of checking in, how, how is this experience of life for you? As we tune into uh, the compassion practice, which I think James introduced today, then we also tune into the potential for suffering. So we're always, through the Brahma Viharas, we're always kind of holding people's hearts in our hands, and saying, how is your experience of life? Is it happy or is it sorrowful? I care about that. I want it to be happy, I don't want you to be in sorrow. So we're developing this uh, sensitivity or tenderness in every moment of doing our, our practices of, of love and compassion for people. We're waking the heart up to the joys and sorrows in life, our own and, and others. This is from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche on something that he called our soft spot. It is as if we had a pimple on our body that was very sore, so sore that we do not want to rub it or scratch it. During our shower, we do not want to rub too much soap over it because it hurts. That sore spot on our body is an analogy for tenderness. Why? Because even in the midst of aggression, insensitivity, or laziness in our life, we always have a soft spot, some point we can cultivate. A more vivid analogy might be of an open wound, which is always there. That open wound is usually very inconvenient and problematic. We would like to be tough. We would like to come on strong, but there will always be a sore spot. At least we are accessible somewhere, so we are not completely covered with a coat of armor all the time. What a relief. So this tenderness is kind of a vulnerable thing, but it's also our way into feeling and our way into opening the heart. One of the reasons we're vulnerable is we know at any time, anything can happen. Anything can happen. And so we're faced with the the potential of loss, of hurt, of pain, really at, at any moment. As you know, you could go into a doctor's office for a checkup, they do one test on you, and a few days later you get the message that changes your life. It can happen anytime. Other things, one of our friends was uh, making a spiritual journey and a little bit of a vacation to India a few years ago. And he was there with his partner. They were staying in a uh, bungalow very close to the beach. And he went out on the beach one morning to do some exercise and just enjoy the tropical air. This is down near Madras. Um, But the morning happened to be December 26th, uh, 2004. And he was standing on the beach and all of a sudden this big wave came up and knocked him over. He said, that's strange. Usually it's a very placid beach. And so he, he got up And as he was standing up, he watched the wave going out. And he noticed that there was this, it left this huge gulf behind it. It like it swept too much water out to sea. And he got alarmed and he went into his bungalow and pulled his partner out and said, come on, we've got to get to some higher ground. So another wave was coming. So they jumped up on this brick uh, stone wall. And he grabbed a hold of a palm tree, and his uh, partner grabbed a hold of him, and they just stood there, anchored as well as they could, about four feet above the, the beach. And then the second wave came. And you probably know that's the wave that was the real tsunami that killed, you know thousands of people in that part of the ocean India and Thailand and Sri Lanka. But because he hung onto the palm tree and his partner hung on to him, they were okay. They were rattled as the wave came up, but they hung on and, and they were all right. There's one point where you don't want to follow the advice of known clinging <laughs> Clinging saved his life, so that was helpful. But anything can happen. Just a normal day in South India Um, Another kind of interesting story is the life of Gnosho Ken Rinpoche. He was a very great teacher in the last 50 years of the last century, one of the great Dzogchen masters of Tibet. He was born in ancient Tibet and grew up in that system where he spent a lot of years in retreat, received teachings and training from great masters, practiced really deeply... In 1949 the invasion happened and um, things started to be more difficult for the Tibetans and finally he fled in 1959 with the Dalai Lama. He fled to India. He was highly recognized at that point. He was um, 37 years old and very well known, a great master, but he was in a strange country where the Tibetan uh, community had not gotten well established. So his life was a little bit of a wandering life. And he said, Sometimes I gave empowerments to great assemblies of people, including dozens of Tolkus and thousands of monks. At other times I was utterly poor, living hand to mouth on the streets in Calcutta, wandering around with my hand out begging for pennies. So many unexpected ups and downs. Who can describe them? We just never know. A few years ago I was teaching a long retreat at IMS on the East Coast. There was a young man who had come to practice, very um, devoted to meditation practice, Dharma practice, and got kind of very inspired during the three months at the end of the time. He wanted to go off and ordain as as a bhikkhu somewhere. Maybe the US, maybe England, maybe Asia. So he went home and was kind of putting his life in order so that he could go off and devote his whole life to Dharma practice when he came down with this mysterious illness. It affected his digestion so seriously that he couldn't eat a normal diet and he had a lot of um, pain, bodily pain, no matter what he did. So the, the possibility of going off to ordain just was no longer an option because his health wouldn't uh, wouldn't allow it. So here he was, young, seemingly in the flush of youth, on fire for practice, and his body wouldn't support him. What to do? Not, not an easy situation. I've kept in touch with him over the years. He's still uh, very into practice, practices when he can, Um, His health is improving. He's understood some more about diet. The situation is still not easy for him. So, life throws us these unexpected situations. How, How do we respond? How does the heart get strong enough to hold these kinds of changes, to hold these unpredictable events that can be so difficult to adjust to? One of the beautiful things about the system of the Brahmaviharas is that it shows us how an awakened heart can respond to the joys and sorrows of life. Metta is the heart opening. Compassion shows the response to suffering. Sympathetic joy shows the approach to happiness. And equanimity holds it all in balance. So it kind of gives us the overview of what's possible for our human potential. But then how do, we, how do we develop it? How do we move into that wisdom? I like this quote from Bob Dylan. This is in his, from his memoirs, uh, Chronicles, if you read it. He said, My grandma was filled with nobility and goodness, told me once that happiness isn't on the road to anywhere, that happiness is the road had also instructed me to be kind because everyone you'll ever meet is fighting a hard battle. This is that that attitude of caring and compassion that can pervade, uh, pervade our relationship to life if we let it. And it means kind of opening up in each new moment and seeing who we're in touch with and what's happening for them and what's happening for ourselves. And this kind of constant tuning in to the experience of sentient beings is what creates this connected feeling. It's really, it's pretty amazing. So then there are these stories that really kind of illustrate these moments of connection that are, that are very strong. There was a story that appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle a few years ago most of you probably know that humpback whales do a mi- annual migration from further north down the coast of California. Then they go to Baja, California in the spring where they breed. And they have their babies in the warmer waters. So one December, there was a female humpback whale that was going by the coast near San Francisco, actually near the Farallon Islands, which are about 15 miles off the coast here. And some fishermen came upon her and unfortunately she had run into an area where crab fishermen had set up their traps. And the way that crab fishers set up their traps is they lay out these nylon ropes with what are called crab pots hanging off them. And the crabs get caught in the pots and the fishermen reel them in. Well, the thing is that these ropes with the pots are really uh, quite heavy. So she had gotten tangled up in a number of these ropes, and some of them had gone around her body like four times, around her back, around her flipper, around her tail, and around her, uh, her mouth. And each, each line had about 1,000 pounds of weights from the, the crab pots on it. And the fishermen who had you know, driven their boat near her could see that these ropes were cutting into her flesh and also that the weight of them was carrying her down. And she was finding it hard to swim up to find air. So she was just struggling all the time. And the eventual outcome was that she was going to sink under the weight of these things. So they called the Marine Mammal Center, which is over in, um, on the headlands of the Marin coast and that group assembled a team and sent them out to find her and they got there a few it took them a few hours to get there but they found her and they had a group of divers but the divers sort of looked at it and go wow what are we going to do this is not going to be that easy you get a human being in the water with a whale and one flip of her tail could could kill the person so what are they going to do this whale is drowning. They could lose their lives. What should they do? So the divers made the choice for them. Made the choice to go in and try to free her. So they entered the water. And they took these curved knives so that they could cut through uh, the ropes. Uh, one diver said that he was working around the whale's face, the with the line that had gone around her face. He said, when I was cutting the line going through her mouth, her eye was there winking at me, watching me. It was an epic moment of my life. Could you imagine that swimming right next to the whale's eye as you're cutting through the rope? Finally, after about an hour, they'd managed to cut through all the lines, and the whale realized she wasn't burdened anymore and she started swimming around. The rescuer said she began swimming around in circles in apparent joy. She then swam up to each diver and nuzzled him and then swam to the next one. This is a quote from one of the divers. It felt to me like she was thanking us, knowing that she was free and that we had helped her. She stopped about a foot away from me, pushed me around a little bit and had some fun. She seemed kind of affectionate, like a dog that's happy to see you. I never felt threatened. It was an amazing, unbelievable experience." So, you know, these moments don't come so often, but imagine that kind of heart-to-heart exchange with a mammal that size, you know, and feeling its sentience, And it's joy at being freed. This is the kind of thing that breaks through some of our usual barriers. This is the kind of connection that the Brahmaviharas also make possible for us. It's so powerful because most of the time we don't think we're that connected. You know, we forget. It's so easy to forget. Because part of the trick of the self is we feel isolated. We tell ourselves that we're different. You know, we're unique, either better than or worse than. One way or another, we're different. We're not like everybody else. And by telling us, telling ourselves this story over and over again, you know, we start to believe it, and it creates a sense of separation. Like, I'm not part of the human family; everybody else is, but I, I don't fit or I don't belong. But, you know, because of this quality or that quality, I'm outside. The Brahma Vihara is really challenge this sense of isolation. I was teaching a retreat for scientists a couple of years ago. We do occasionally these meditation retreats for scientists, which are people in the physical sciences, but also people in the social sciences and neuroscience, because there's so much interest now between the intersection of neuroscience and meditation practice. So we've held retreats so that the neuroscientists could start to feel some of this from the inside. So at one of these retreats, one of the scientists, we were talking about meta and connection, one of the scientists said a recent study, and I, I can't tell you where it is, found that one of the deepest sources of unhappiness for people was the sense of isolation. And one of the greatest normalizing qualities was a sense of being connected. And you can look on this culture where so many threads of connection have, have gone. The family is not held together so strongly. The communities are not so functional and people often feel isolated in their apartments or, or homes. And it creates a deep sense of unhappiness as, as though we, we are not part of the family, the human family. So Metta shows us something different. And I want to talk about how this happens. First, I want to read a little bit of this poem from Naomi Shihab Nye called Kindness. She's a Palestinian-American poet has some really beautiful creations. This is just a fragment from a poem called Kindness. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. What I love in this passage is the line, till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. The size of the cloth is all sentient life. All sentient life knows sorrow, knows happiness, knows pain, and knows pleasure. And as we we sink into this realization through loving-kindness practice, we start to realize that we're all in that same boat. All of us are dealing with these basic problems of the, the succession of pleasure and pain that's out of our control and how anything can happen. Our life can be taken away. Our health can be taken away. Our loved ones can be taken away. We're all that vulnerable the same situation. So this is one of the great connecting truths of the Brahmavihara practice. Our basic concerns are the same. Those four phrases that you've been working with, they apply for everyone. Safety, happiness, health, and ease. We're all looking for the same things. So that's one level of connection. We see that basically it's the same heart in each of us, open to the same kind of joy and sorrow and open to the same possibility of love in each of us. Then there's another way we're deeply connected that the Buddha talked about. You know, the Buddha had um, different kinds of psychic vision that are described in the ancient texts, in the suttas. And with that ancient vision, that psychic vision, he could see back into the history of uh, different people's lives and existences. And he said, from looking at that uh, vision, looking with that vision, all of us have lived so many different lives in the past and have been in touch with each other over many different lives in the past. And he said, because of this, truth of being uh, born and dying and being reborn again and again and again. and He said countless times, since beginningless time. He said, we've crossed paths in really intimate ways. He said, because of this, it's not easy to find a being who has not been at some time in the past your mother or your father or your sister or your brother or your son or your daughter. So you may or may not believe in this whole teaching on on rebirth and past lives, but what if it was so? What if that was true? And just looking around the room tonight, that we all have been family to each other maybe many times before. You know, there's a possibility that we're much more intimately connected than we ever imagined that we were. The Buddha said it's like that. He said that he could see that was so. And so what if that was true? What if the person sitting next to you had been your mother before? What would you want to do for her or him? And that's why we come on the line that's in the sutta that we've been chanting every night from the metta-sutta. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. The instruction is to treat every being as though they were our own child. That's the possibility that the loving-kindness practice directs us to, to look at. So another little story. Jack Cornfield, the founder of Spirit Rock, has a daughter named Caroline who's about, I think she's about 25 now. She's in law school at Berkeley. She's planning to become a human rights activist uh, through her work as a lawyer. So she was driving from Berkeley back to Woodacre one day and going along the uh, six-lane road of Sir Francis Drake near the ferry crossing where the ferry leaves to go across the bay to San Francisco And the traffic was slowing down in a way that it really shouldn't have at that time of day, and she couldn't figure out what was going on. But it was moving slowly, and as she got up close, she saw what was happening. A mother duck was trying to cross the road to get to the bay. But not only was the mother trying to cross, she had six little ducklings who were following after her. So cars were kind of, you know, slowing down, coming to a stop, trying to drive around them, because, of course, in Marin, nobody wants to stop. You know, you'd be five minutes late to watch the evening news. So the traffic was slowing down, but still sort of driving around. People were honking, getting a little frustrated. So Caroline and her friend get up to where the ducks are, and she stops her car in the middle of the road, and her friend gets out and flags down the other cars so they stop. And then Caroline shepherds the duck across to the divider, and they get to the curb safely across three lanes of traffic, And the mother hops up, oh cool, everything's great. The ducks can't, The little ducklings can't make it up onto the divider, it's too tall, so Caroline gives each of them a little boost up. And then she thinks, okay, everything's cool. Oh, mother hops down on the other side to cross three more lanes so she can head for the bay. So then the traffic in the other direction starts doing the same thing, slowing down, honking, people sort of getting out of their cars. What's going on? Move it up ahead. You know, i got to get somewhere. And so Caroline and her friends stop those cars and escort the ducks across until finally they get to the other side and then they have a straight shot to the bay. So that's like, you know, caring for all sentient beings like they're your only child. That kind of love and damn to the traffic and the speed and all of that. I thought that was a really beautiful gesture. It's one of those gestures that moves moves us. So this this attitude of caring for all living beings like they were our children can blossom into something that's a, a said to be a very powerful factor in motivation. And let me just, I want to explain it a little bit stepwise. Um, If we care for all sentient beings, as you did in the meditation in the last few days leading up to today, with a heart of loving kindness, you start to develop a feeling you really do want people to be happy. And in the compassion, you'll see as you get there, you really do want people not to suffer. What's the best way to guarantee that? If you really want somebody to come into full happiness and you really want them out of suffering, what does that imply? They've got to awaken, don't they? Because as long as we don't awaken, we're back in this realm where we're you know, being born and dying and suffering and the heart is clouded all over and over again. So when you take Loving kindness and compassion for all beings to its logical extension, you realize what you really want is for everyone to awaken. Okay, how can you help that? Can you help other people to awaken if you haven't awakened? Probably not. Somebody like the Buddha can help other beings to awaken because he's made that journey. But if you haven't made that journey, you're not going to be so able to help. So the motivation becomes, let me wake up so I can help others wake up and move beyond the bounds of suffering, move to true happiness, the deepest happiness. This particular motivation has a special name. It's called bodhicitta. Bodhi means awaken. Citta means heart or mind. So, it's sometimes called the heart or mind of awakening, or sometimes just the awakening heart. As our heart starts to wake up and this sensitivity and the connection permeates, we want to bring all beings along with us on this journey. And this, this aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all beings, so all beings can be brought to freedom, is the core of the Bodhisattva movement, the Bodhisattva vow. This forms the basis of the bodhisattva path. So it's as though this unlimited, this limitless, boundless love and compassion that we can touch sometimes then comes back as a motivation into our own practice. I want to wake up as the best way to help others come out of suffering, come into happiness. So this is called the practice of bodhicitta and we can uh, bring that in more or less as an expression of our love and compassion, we can make that part of our intention in meditating. That's why we sometimes say we meditate for the sake of all beings. We wish to awaken for the benefit of all beings. Now, that's, that's not easy to maintain. You know, that's a very lofty aspiration. So it's not like it has to be a big flame you know, that's burning us all the time in our practice, but just a little candlelight that can inspire us from time to time to practice for others. So we can start a sitting and remind ourselves that that's our inclination. At the start of every sit, I say something like, may I come to awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. And it's just a reminder that that's a piece of my motivation. And then that, that can grow. So we don't expect it to grow huge. It's very difficult to make that huge. But it's a piece. It can be a piece. Even the Dalai Lama says for him, it's not huge. He says, um, I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is that is all. So this is in a way the, the, a grown-up side of our own love and compassion, this factor of bodhicitta. And if it appeals to you, it's helpful to do it as a practice. And if you like it, you could say it at the start of every sitting or every walking, every period of practice. Remind yourself it's part of what you're here for if that connects for you. Metta also has a, a big influence in our um, intention in our conduct. You know, really, the care for others, this loving kindness for others, is the true source of our commitment to sila, to uh, compassionate, wise conduct. When we practice the precepts, we're offering people that sense of safety that uh, what the Buddha called freedom from fear. This development of, of sila can be taken a long way also. Normally, you know, for most of us I like to think we don't take the precepts expecting to keep them perfectly. We take them expecting to break them. That's why it's a training. We don't think we're gonna be perfect with this. We know we're gonna fall short. That's okay. We learn each time. But then you look at somebody who's really developed this practice, and it's pretty impressive. So a few years ago, uh, Oprah Winfrey interviewed the Dalai Lama, and then the interview got published in uh, her magazine O. Oh. And I have to say, I keep getting more and more respect for Oprah because of the way she brings these teachings and you know, so many uh, beautiful sources of wisdom to such a broad Broad audience. You know, first there was her afternoon talk show, and then uh, the magazine O, and you probably know she started her own TV network now called the Oprah Winfrey Network. And in describing it in an interview, because it, it was just launched about a month ago, she said, What I consider the Oprah Winfrey Network to be is mindful television. So she really understands she wants to make a positive impact in people's lives, and she has access to a lot of people. So she's featured, for example, either on her show or in her magazine, she's featured people like James Barris, <laughs> Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein. I think Joseph was in O oh, doing... Uh, an interview about non-attachment in relationships for which he gained the nickname, Dr. Love. (laughs) (laughs) So Oprah's kind of infiltrating these uh, nuggets into mainstream society, and I think it's really wonderful. So she was interviewing the Dalai Lama, and it became quite interesting. She began by asking him, have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? And the Dalai Lama replied, small incidents like accidentally killing an insect. Killing an insect, Oprah said. An insect. Hmm, okay. The Dalai Lama continued, my attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable. (laughs) Not very peaceful. Bed bugs also. And that's it? Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly, but major mistakes, it seems, no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated, mulling over the idea. She fell silent. There was awe in her voice when she continued, You have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a great life, to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, service to Buddhism, service to humanity, I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind So, he's only, you know, he's only about 16 lifetimes ahead of us on this journey. So, we'll we'll catch up. That's the possibility of development that's there. And this refinement of meditation that he has is what allows him to practice his sila so effectively. The two go together. You know, when the mind has a lot of greed, aversion, delusion, rampant, It's very hard for conduct to become purified. But as the mind gets more and more quiet and established in loving kindness and compassion, it's much easier for the conduct to reflect uh, that kind of skill. Carol talked a lot about generosity the other evening. And loving kindness is also the source of generosity. We have to tune into what somebody else needs and wish for their happiness before we're inclined to be generous toward them. There are a lot of um, kind of dark forces in the world today. I I can't speak so much for Europe and Canada, but for the United States, this is probably as sour a mood as I have felt in many, many years, and a very kind of pessimistic mood in the nation. So it's, you know, rare when we can look around this society and see glimmers of hope. But one of the big ones was pointed to by a a recent book by Paul Hawken, and I just want, want to read you the title. He called his book Blessed Unrest, How the Largest Movement in the World Came into Being and Why No One Saw It Coming. And what he's pointing to, the research that he did, was thousands of individuals and small foundations who are motivated by a sense of generosity and justice and caring, going out and independent of governments, just making an attempt to do in the world what they can. And then he started to catalog all these organizations. He came up with something like a million that he found around the world, just people who have dedicated their lives or come into some money and dedicated a chunk of their money just to doing good in the area that they can access immediately. And he gives a lot of examples, I'm sure you've heard a lot. Dr. Paul Farmer in Haiti, Greg Mortensen with the schools in Afghanistan and Pakistan, schools for girls there. Um, So many different movements. But just from our scene, we have three friends who are doing relief work in Burma through three different groups. Carol talked about uh, the money that she took in and the work that she does every year looking after uh, nunneries and providing food for villagers who lost a lot through the cyclone. We have another friend who has made schools in Burma uh, his main priority and every year he's gone in and taken about hundred thousand dollars uh, and in Burma, you can build a school for $25,000. So every year he's gone in and established four new schools in different, usually remote, rural areas of Burma, uh, the money provided by generous donors. And once you establish a school, the government generally will commit to send a teacher. So it's not just putting in a building and then it goes away. The government has continued to, to supply teachers for these schools. Then another of our friends... Uh, has really kind of uh, given up his life in business and devoted his work life to a nonprofit called Foundation for the People of Burma. He's one of our uh, past board presidents. I don't know if you know, Sally is currently president of the Spirit Rock board, and he was the president before her. His name's Hal Nathan. And Hal, uh, in 2009, I think it was, raised something like $650,000 for the people of Burma and went in and worked with established uh, non-profit groups uh, to deliver health care and sanitary drinking water in many villages that had nothing, because the government doesn't provide. So all these individuals are just taking it upon themselves, out of their care and kindness, to make the difference that they can in the world. And I've never seen anything like it before, and it's happening all over. It's quite impressive. So this um, this movement of good heartedness is active in the world; it's really happening. We come to appreciate it as one of the um, mature aspects of dharma practice. Maybe one of, along with equanimity, one of one of the real great testaments to dharma practice. I like this quotation from Alice Walker you know, the author, uh, The Color Purple. She said, as I get older, I realize the thing that I value the most is good-heartedness. Because this can inspire everything. I think Winnie said that metta and compassion are two of the three aspects of right intention, the second factor in the Eightfold Path. This good-heartedness, as you could say, is a path factor, a central path factor. So Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche goes on from that story that I read, quote I read a little earlier about the soft spot, which is talking about an outer wound on the body that's sore that we don't want to touch. He continues, There's also an inner wound called Garba or Buddha nature. This is like a heart that has been sliced and bruised with wisdom and compassion. When the external wound and the internal wound begin to meet, and to communicate, then we begin to realize that our whole being is made up of one complete sore spot altogether. That is called bodhisattva fever. That vulnerability is compassion. We really have no way to defend ourselves anymore. So this is the, you know, the really ripened heart of compassion that is in the world to give. That is in the world just to make a difference, to alleviate suffering, to bring bring happiness. This kind of attitude was expressed in a really lovely short poem from the Japanese hermit monk Ryokan, when he said, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world, to gather up all the people in this floating world. So we start to feel that we really are doing this for all beings. All beings become part of our consideration in our practice, in our daily life. What will best support? And then as this quality of, of tenderness grows, we find far from making us weaker, it makes us stronger. You know, originally we think, oh, I can't be tender in the world. I'll get wiped out. People will take advantage of me and use me if I'm too soft. But we find as we develop it along with the other qualities of mindfulness and equanimity and joy, it makes us stronger. And we find new skills, new powers for dealing with all the difficult mind states that come our way. Example, criticism. You know, one of the things that's hard to deal with in the world is praise and blame. When we get criticized, it's painful. So we had a very interesting lesson on this from the Dalai Lama. In this very room, on this very spot, he was here several years ago at a conference of Buddhist teachers. There were about 200 of us who assembled for a few days and spent a day and a half with him here. And the format was different people would present topics to him to get his mind turning and then ask for a response. But sometimes it was a little bit like turning a fire hose on him. So somebody would present, and then somebody else would present, and then somebody else would present, and then we'd ask for a response. So somebody you know, presented and said, well, your, Dolly, your holiness, what do you think? And he said, oh, all, all gone from up here. Don't remember anything. First, somebody talks, and then I could think of something to say, but then somebody else talks, I forget it all. Nothing left.) Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> totally unconcerned, you know, that he'd, that he'd forgotten it all. But so one of these presenters um, was kind of kind of bold, or you know, I would say, a little bit cheeky. And he started off saying, well, Your Holiness, I'd like to ask you about Buddhism's place in the world today. He said it's becoming uh, very popularized. And so, um, you know, we see advertisements for a perfume named uh, Samsara or, uh, you know, a resort that says, we'll carry you to Nirvana the first day. And... You yourself, Your Holiness, are the biggest popularizer of them all. And this risks trivializing the Dharma and losing its essence. What do you think about that? (laughs) This is a Westerner, you can imagine. So the Dalai Lama just fell silent and just reflected for a minute. And then he answered in a way that um, really moved me. He said, some people you see call me living Buddha or they call me the God King. No, I am not. I am just a simple Buddhist monk. But other people call me counter-revolutionary or a wolf in monk's clothing. But you see, I look back at my own intention. If my intention is sincere, then that is what is important. How others perceive me is up to them. I don't care. And he said that very strongly. I don't care. That was such an expression of um, confidence from knowing his own mind, from a mind free from ill will and confusion. And I thought, that's amazing that he can feel that because he's in a position of such responsibility, you know, more than just about anyone I know. He's the only person who may be able to help the six or seven million people who are still left in Tibet. You know, something like a million people were killed um, after the invasion. And the hopes of the Tibetan people for their culture and any degree of freedom rests on his persona in the world. And yet, he can still say, How others perceive me is up to them. I don't care. That's the strength of loving kindness and compassion and and equanimity. Or with, with anger, the heart of metta is one where it's hard for anger to gain a foothold. It's said that loving kindness creates a mind that is so spacious, anger can't stick. And it's compared to tossing a bucket of paint through space. It can't stick to the space. And anger can't stick in a mind that's full of loving kindness. I'm sure you read that Aung San Suu Kyi was recently released from house arrest. And so she's given a few interviews. And I, I didn't expect anything else. But she said it very clearly in one of her first interviews out. She said, I have no anger toward the military leaders. No anger. I'm ready to sit down and talk with them at any time for the benefit of the people of Burma. And I know, you probably know too, she's practiced a huge amount of loving kindness during her house arrest. She was under house arrest for most of the last 17 years. And during that time, she was receiving instructions from a well-known Burmese Sayadaw. And part of what he instructed her in was loving-kindness, so she did a lot of loving-kindness practice. And with that, she was able to um, deal with what I imagine would have been a lot of anger, so that she doesn't, uh, she doesn't have it now, she says. And I was reminded also of something that... Um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said along these lines, never succumb to the temptation of being bitter. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the instrument of love. This is why he was such an amazing leader that he could, he could follow that. He could see the you know, huge injustices that were being done And keep his own heart in a place of love as he moved forward, as he taught, as he acted, as he spoke. So, this development of tenderness and the insight into connection has a very healing quality in our life, in our heart, in our practice. Sometimes it touches parts of difficulty from the past. Memories come up, hurts come up, resentments come up. This is from an Australian poet, Michael Lunig. When the heart is cut or cracked or broken, do not clutch it. Let the wound lie open. Let the wind from the good old sea blow in to bathe the wound with salt and let it sting. Let a stray dog lick it. Let a bird lean in the hole and sing a simple song like a tiny bell and let it ring. So when we come upon these difficult places in practice, we hold them with this heart of loving kindness. And the loving kindness changes those wounds. They heal under its warmth and under its its light. And we commit ourselves more and more as our practice goes on, we commit ourselves to this idea that we don't have to move out of the place of loving kindness. You know, when I came into Dharma practice, I thought, well, my anger is a useful thing. You know, I'm always gonna keep it so I can be strong if somebody you know, infringes on my rights. But the more and more we practice and we see the strength that comes from loving-kindness, we trust more and more in the possibility of being able to always act from that place. It doesn't mean that we don't act forcefully. It doesn't mean that we don't act strongly. It doesn't mean that we're shy about speaking our truth or speaking to power. You can see that in the Dalai Lama. You can see that in Martin Luther King. But we let it come from this place of compassion and care. That is a possibility. Because we always remember through metta how much alike we all are. That we all want safety and happiness and health and ease. We all want the same. And you start to wonder, how different are we anyway? You look at our bodies, they're small variations, but they're much the same. Two eyes, two ears, a nose, a tongue, a mouth, a heart. You look at our minds, and we all know sadness and fear and anger and wanting and longing and embarrassment, and we all know love and compassion and joy and contentment, happiness, So what is so different? Same body, same heart. It's kind of like one organism that's been poured into different jars, and then those jars have gone off and had different experiences. And so they've gotten shaped or colored, you know, a little bit differently. But basically, it's the same jar with the same stuff in it. And so metta makes us realize that. We're all basically the same and that's a, that's a deep kind of understanding of connection. There's this beautiful quote from Rumi's teacher, Shams of Tabriz. I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. These are not true distinctions in the eye of loving kindness. We see the unity that underlies all the apparent differences. And that takes away this um, sorrowful sense of isolation or separation or not belonging, not being connected. So I just want to close with this um, end of the interview uh, Oprah had with the Dalai Lama. And before I quote him, I just want to mention that in the Mahayana tradition, the Tibetan tradition, compassion is the primary Brahmavihara. In our tradition of Theravada, loving kindness is the primary Brahma Vihara. But very, these two are very, very close. So when we say metta, we could say compassion. And when we say compassion, we could say metta. So think of them as virtually the same. So Oprah finishes by asking the Dalai Lama, in my magazine I do a column called What I Know for Sure. What do you know for sure? The one thing on which you have no doubt. The Dalai Lama did not hesitate. Compassion is the best source of happiness. For happy life and happy world, there is no doubt. So let's just sit for a minute together. Loving-kindness is the best source of happiness for happy life and happy world. Thank you for listening.